Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News. Hi, it's Leslie Allen, editor of Shift Magazine. And Alexa St. John, covering tech and suppliers. Joining us in just a few minutes on today's episode is Nicholas Lang, the director for the Center for Mobility Innovation at Boston Consulting Group. Uh, He's going to discuss the company's latest report on urban mobility meltdowns and whether self-driving vehicles might have a role in preventing them. But first, Leslie and Alexa, I noticed last week as I was reading about the new Lucid Air electric vehicle that we passed a milestone of sorts uh, that I had never heard of before. Uh, Last Wednesday, our listeners may or may not have known, uh, was World EV Day. Uh, I did not know such a thing exists. Uh, Leslie, what what did you make of that? Well, Pete, the reason that you didn't know such a thing existed is that it had not existed until Wednesday of last week. And this is an initiative that was started in Europe. They, there's a company called Green.TV, which is a media company that focuses on sta- uh, sustainability issues. And they partnered up with ABB, which is a Swiss technology company. You might know them from their sponsorship of Formula E Racing. So they came up with this day and they got people to sign what they're calling the EV Pledge where they are committing to cleaner air, lower emissions, et cetera. So they've gotten individuals and companies to sign on to this. And then they have this whole social media campaign. Alexa, I know you did some work on that. And there were companies that came out with initiatives, like I believe Jaguar Land Rover, for example. Yes. I mean, while in the time of uh, COVID-19, really anything you can do is going to be virtual these days. So you're right. Uh, JLR really, I think, led World EV Day with its social media campaign. Um, And, you know, just putting out uh, information about electric vehicles and and what their plans are for the coming years uh, as it relates to EVs. Um, Also, Nissan celebrated a bit of a milestone, which is uh, Wednesday marked the production of the 500,000th Nissan Leaf EV, uh, and they celebrated that in England. Um, And and there were a few other announcements as well made, as you said, mostly on social media, but uh, really getting people to kind of rally together. And, you know, I think... uh, People are getting pretty bullish about EVs these days. There's There's been a lot uh, in recent headlines. You know, when yeah. I think about the Nissan Leaf, I remember in the early days, and I don't know if you guys remember that commercial that Nissan used to run, and they had a guy coming out of his house, and he goes to his garage to his Nissan Leaf, and there's a polar bear there, and the, and the polar bear stands up and gives the guy a hug. I don't know if you guys remember that. It was a little cheesy, but it was actually kind of a fun ad to watch. That was quite a long time ago. It, I do remember that ad, and it was a good one. Um, and I think the marketing was probably better than the the initial Leaf vehicle. And uh, you know, maybe thinking back on that, it, it's amazing to see how far electric vehicles have come in terms of uh, their style and their performance. Uh, probably looking no further than than the Lucid Air this week. Uh, you really begin to see over the last decade a, a progression toward toward vehicles that consumers might 
might want in, in vehicles with longer range. And, uh, you know, we also had the GM uh, Nicola tie up this week, which kind of is one more dent in this, uh, you know, alternate fuel vehicles becoming a, a reality storyline that, that continues. Yeah. You know, when you talk about the Lucid Air, for example, I think the first one that's coming out is the Dream Edition. And it has the equivalent of over a thousand horsepower, zero to 60 in 2.5 seconds in a range of 517 miles on a single charge. I mean, they are really stepping up their game when it comes to some of these EVs. And I too was um, surprised to hear about the General Motors and Nikola tie-up, but that's a uh, could be a sign of things to come. You know, these automakers are signing on with tech companies, startups, and helping them to bring these products to market. So that's um, going to be something interesting to watch as we go forward. That uh, That is true. And perhaps something else to come is, uh, is what Nicholas Lang calls a urban mobility meltdown. Uh, traffic in cities is getting worse and BCG has analyzed uh, the kind of promises ahead that self-driving vehicles might bring the pitfalls ahead uh, as well. And without further ado, uh, let's go to our conversation with Nicholas Lang from BCG. Thank you so much for joining us, Nicholas. It's a pleasure. Where are you, um, where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Munich. Germany. From Munich. Oh my yeah. goodness. I think this is our, our one of our most long distance uh, interviews yet. Great to be with you. Yeah, even if we're apart six or seven time zones. Okay, so I thought it would be good to start with uh, just a little of a basic question. Now, you are the co-founder of Boston Consulting Group's Center for Mobility Innovation. Now, can you give us an overview of what the Center for Mobility Innovation is? I mean, what sort of um, areas do you concentrate on? Yeah, well, that's a great question. You know, we created the Center for Mobility Innovation, or CMI, a few years ago when we realized that the challenges that the new mobility brings, like electrification, autonomy, um, shared uh, car sharing, and so on, cannot be handled by um, OEMs alone or by cities alone or by traffic and mobility providers alone. So what we see is that uh, the challenges of the future, when we look at the future mobility, requires actually an entity that is really covering different competence levels. Yeah. And so we have in the CMI, we have obviously automotive and mobility experts, but we also have infrastructure and urban design uh, experts. We have transport and logistic experts. We have data experts. And so when, when we founded that center, it was really about bringing all this expertise uh, to bear to serve clients that are also more and more uh, working across traditional industry boundaries. Nicholas, one of your recent studies caught our attention, and it was one called uh, Can Self-Driving Cars Stop the Urban Mobility Meltdown? Uh, and here on the Shift Mobility Podcast, we're, we're talking often about self-driving cars. But before we get to those, uh, I wonder if you can just help us define from the outset here, what is the urban mobility meltdown? 
Well, the urban mobility meltdown is what we currently see uh, in the world's uh, megacities. Yeah, it is uh, uh, hours and hours lost in congestion. It is average traffic, uh, let's say, time and, and, and speed uh, that is somewhere in the low 20 kilometers per hour. Um, it is, uh, well, a number of fatalities. It's uh, an increasing CO2 emission. And the point we are seeing in a meltdown is that actually many of the traditional transport modes, be it uh, large buses, uh, be it individual car-based transport or rail, is not optimally, um, I would say, connected to each other. And that's what we describe as a meltdown. Now, one of your main conclusions is that there's really no one-size-fits-all solution to uh, various mobility challenges. I mean, for instance, robo-shuttles are ideal for cities like Singapore. Uh, E-scooters may do better for a city like Buenos Aires. Um, So you've identified five distinct types of cities. Now, what determines if a certain transportation scenario will be suitable for one city versus another? What makes those distinctions? Well, that, that's a very good question, especially talking about what we did in the study. So you described it. We defined five different city archetypes, which are clearly laid out uh, in, 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 in the study. Uh, but then what is interesting is that we have actually developed one of the largest, I would say, traffic simulation models in the world. Uh, BCG has an analytics company called Gamma, and the colleagues of Gamma have developed a traffic simulation model that is handling 1.7 billion trips per day. Um, And with this huge number, which is obviously applied to the different archetypes, we can simulate how different transport mixes Uh, will impact certain KPIs. So let me be very concrete. If I have a city that is pushing micro-mobility, obviously these KPIs, these key performance indicators will look differently than if I have a city that is pushing traditional public transport. And uh, so we have been looking at KPIs like obviously the speed of travel, CO2 emission, fatalities, parking space, um, cost, And what we have seen is that depending on the archetype of the city and on the transport mix uh, you're applying, you have huge differences in the outcome. Nicholas, you made a reference to the five uh, city archetypes. Can you uh, give us more detail on that? Yes, of course. So um, we tried to fit all the mega cities of the world in five city archetypes. Um, and obviously then we use those archetypes to really apply the traffic simulation I shared with you before. So uh, the five uh, city archetypes are first what we call the highly compact middleweights. So these are typical cities that are inland uh, with a central river, for example, or on a coast. They have a highly compact city center. Uh, a relatively small city with less than 5 million inhabitants. Uh, and typical examples would be Berlin and Seattle. Um, then the sec- second type uh, are car-centric giants. So cities built around cars. Um, Los Angeles, Toronto, for example, um, typically between 3,000 and 6,000 square kilometers. 
Um, and obviously very disp dispersed and very car dependent. Third are the prosperous innovation centers. Um, take London, San Francisco, for example. Yeah, um, around anything between 4,000 and 8,000 square kilometers next to a river or to a coast. It has several medium density towns within the city itself. Um, and is obviously uh, also, let's say, at the forefront of innovation when it comes to mobility. The fourth one are the developing urban powerhouses, um, Bangkok, Buenos Aires, uh, cities that go up to 15 million inhabitants, typically on a coast, um, and uh, obviously also with a very dense city cluster along a natural boundary, as I said, a coast. And fifth and last are the high-density megacities. So these are cities such as New York or Shanghai uh, with uh, anything between 10 and 25 million inhabitants, um, typically on a coast or along a, a river. And um, what is here interesting is that these cities have a large city center, but then they are surrounded by a series of satellites. So these are the five city archetypes we have used for our study. You know, you've said that automated vehicles can play a, a fundamental role in, in these cities going forward, uh, perhaps uh, more so than other mobility options. You know, how so? And then second part of that question would be, you know, there's, there seems to be growing skepticism about the robo-taxi business model. So uh, how, do you, how do you counter that skepticism or, or do you, you know, buy into it in some fashion? Mm. Look, so I think... I think um, so let me start maybe with the second half of your questions and then the contribution, yeah? Because I think let's let's address skepticism before and then talk about how we still believe that autom uh, autonomous vehicles will will contribute to mobility. Um, so I think the skepticism um, is real, and uh, I think if we look today at the challenges, uh, especially when it comes to data fusion and data interpretation, uh, we see that there is still a way to go before you can really have fully autonomous vehicles as we describe level four, level five. Uh, and I think this appears especially strong as let's say three to four years ago, I think we had an autonomous driving hype, like 2016, 17, people were believing that we would have autonomous cars by 2021. Um, and I think what we have seen in the last uh, months and let's say a couple of years is that it's not good enough to have uh, great cameras and grow great sensors and great lighters. But I think the difficulties in the data interpretation and the data fusion, as I said. The second element which plays an important role is that we also see that as long as that's not solved, the regulatory framework for autonomous cars will be challenging. So from my perspective, I think we have a clear view that um, we have the possibility, we will take another, I would say five to 10 years until we will have a technical base that is applicable beyond, let's say, uh, some geofenced areas and also the regulatory base to really apply this largely. So to make a long story short, I personally understand the skepticism because I think in comparison to what was predicted three to four years ago, I think it will take longer. But at the end of the day, I believe that the technology itself and the mobility solution itself will ultimately prevail. So coming to your first part of the question, why is that so important? 
Uh, well, I, I think we continue, and that was one of the reasons why people embrace autonomous vehicles be already before. Uh, there is a clear view that autom autonomous vehicles will um, contribute in many ways to a positive urban traffic. Um, if you have, the, if you, if they're used wisely, they will reduce the need for parking space. They will reduce, obviously, um, travel cost. They will reduce uh, emissions, um, and they will also, I think, drive social inclusion because it will be able, uh, these autonomous vehicles will be able to transport people that are either too young, too old, or too poor today to drive themselves or to take a cab. Do you foresee that these autonomous vehicle fleets will be operated by the public sector as part of transportation departments, uh, by the private sector, uh, some combination thereof? and, and does that maybe depend on which which kind of city type uh, these services are offered in? Yeah, well, I think the first part. So I think we will see in the different cities and in in countries of this world very different approaches. Yeah, um, uh, my view is that uh, I think we will see autonomous vehicles uh, very strongly pushed by city authorities and government. For example, in countries like China, uh, I could imagine that in the U.S. Um, the situation will be a mix of some cities driving this, but also mobility providers offering this. Um, and I think in Europe, we also will have more a tendency toward seeing these uh, robo-taxi fleets or these robo-shuttle fleets, actually, um, as part of an enlarged offering of public transport. Yeah. Uh, now, who is then operating this uh, is another question. But uh, overall, um, I think uh, we will have, uh, let's say, starting from China, where it will be very much public uh, authority driven, a mix in Europe and, and, and I would say slightly more private initiatives in the US. Uh, that's with regard to who drives it and who owns it. Uh, I think then there's a second question or two elements which I think are very important going forward. One is, I think we will see these autonomous vehicles appearing first in clearly geofenced areas. So imagine big airports, nuclear power uh, plants, uh, or specific areas in a central business district. That's, I think, one thing which is important. And the second thing which I think is even more important is that I do not believe in robo-taxis uh, or in autonomous taxis. I believe in robo-shuttles and autonomous shuttles, which means um, I think um, if we send into the cities robo-taxis, this will actually further increase the, the mobility meltdown because a lot of people will switch from public transport into uh, uh, robo-pods while I think we need to push robo-shuttles, which are 8 to 15-seaters, so small buses, because I think that would be then the size of the vehicle that will allow us to uh, drive uh, uh, in a way that we can transport enough people in a very, I would say, comfortable way without actually uh, reducing the traffic flow.
Nicholas, I'm curious uh, more about these robopods. I had not heard that term used before. Can you give us a definition? Uh, these are smaller AVs that would you be, would they be summoned by apps, et cetera? How would that work? Well, robopods is exactly what we described, I think, uh, before, which is uh, robopods are uh, typically described as a two or maximum four-seater, uh, which is actually taking over the role of the, of the existing cap. Um, you would be able to book them uh, via an app. They would come and pick you up uh, at your front door. Um, and uh, obviously, as I said before, if these uh, robopods are becoming the prevalent transport mode, we actually risk to have more congestion than before. Yeah. Together with the World Economic Forum, we have done a clear simulation in the city of Boston, and we have proven that if people are free to choose their preferred transport mode, uh, then we, went, we will end up in, in more traffic because everyone wants to sit in a nice, comfortable two-seaters instead of a bus or, uh, or subway to, uh, wagon. Um, so the RoboPod, to answer your question, is a two- to four-seater. Again, let me reiterate, I do not believe in robopods. I believe in robo shuttles, which are eight to 15 seaters, uh, which uh, might also be booked via an app, which might not come actually to your doorstep, but which might come in a three minute vicinity of your doorstep, uh, which will have flexible routes and which will be, I would say, exactly the missing link between what we have today, namely large buses that are half or three-quarter empty, and the RoboPod, which is comfortable but challenging for the urban mobility. That sort of raises the question, why is there so much discussion now about robo-taxis if this is something that will actually worsen congestion in cities? I mean, is it something that just seems better, a better sell to the public? Well, I'm not sure. I've actually observed a shift away from robo-taxis to much more a what we call an autonomous mobility on demand discussion. Yeah, because people have understood that if I if I limit autonomous driving to a copy of a private car, it won't work. Yeah. Uh, let's say I've been discussing in the last couple of years with about 100 cities around the world. Uh, with mayors, with public transport departments, with ministries of transport. And I can tell you that in the large, large, large majority of the discussion, we actually first start talking about the robo-shuttle. Robo then we see the robo-taxi as a complement. And then we see privately owned autonomous cars uh, as an addition. You've identified four areas uh, that really need to be addressed before autonomous vehicles uh, can succeed. You know, we're talking about infrastructure, regulations, acceptance, and then collaboration. So going through these step-by-step -step and starting with infrastructure, what really has to happen uh, in order for these to succeed? Well, I think in infrastructure, uh, we will need, uh, let's say, new uh, um, hardware and digitally connected infrastructure. Yeah, uh, we, uh, I, we have clearly the view that, let's say, autonomous vehicles should be able to handle most of the traffic situations by themselves. So 
meaning they don't need to some kind of remote guidance. But we also agree that when it comes to very complex crossing or merging of lanes, you will need surrounding vehicle to infrastructure communication that handles priority rules um, in a way that not every autonomous car stops. Yeah. So um, I think that's something. So that's something which is very important. It's actually traffic guiding infrastructure. Um, with regard to regulations, I think uh, we have seen dif different uh, initiatives. I think from uh, Department of Transport in the U.S., we have seen different autonomous uh, driving ethic commissions in the, in Europe. But what is clear is that we are still not having a fully reliable, I would say, regulatory framework when it comes to traffic regulation, uh, accident handling, responsibility, attribution, and so on. So I think this is also something that is that that needs to be addressed. And if you just come back to what I said before, when you asked me about the, the skepticism, I said, well, one is technology and, and data fusion, and the other one is, is regulation. Then there is a topic of acceptance. Um, I think on acceptance, um, again, it's really important to make people feel comfortable in autonomous uh, vehicles. Um, it's not something that uh, people are used yet to. And so, for example, when we launched autonomous vehicles in the city of Boston, uh, um, we have spent considerable amount of time to really invite citizens to come and see these autonomous vehicles, to experience them. So I think societal acceptance will be super important. And last but not least, um, I think autonomous mobility on demand will only happen if we have really a close partnership between the mobility providers, the infrastructure companies, and the city authorities. Um, and this is coming back to what we said, why did we create as BCG the Center for Mobility Innovation? Because we deeply believe that this collaboration between different players is essential to make mobility move. Nicholas, in the study, you go into some of these regulatory challenges that, that you've mentioned. I want to drill down on one aspect in particular. Uh, what are the challenges as far as data goes in terms of access and ownership? Uh, what are the primary concerns in, in those areas? Well, I think the, the primary concern in, in uh, the country I'm calling in from Germany, I think is very specific in that, um, is that people obviously um, feel that by using an autonomous car that is being handled by uh, a provider, uh, they're further giving up elements of their privacy. Yeah? And uh, um, people then exactly know when you boarded a bus, when you left the bus, when you summoned it, when you paid it. Um, so the key question here is obviously who owns, let's say, this, this people data. I think that's one element. Um, but there's another topic which plays an important role, which is the, uh, I would say, functional data in the vehicle itself. Uh, because obviously autonomous uh, cars uh, could be a prime target for any kind of cybersecurity attack. Yeah. Um, and, and so the likelihood of this being... Uh, the case and uh, is, 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 is high. And I think that's why a lot of providers spend huge amount of, of time and resources to kind of ensure uh, this level of cybersecurity for this type of, of transportation modes. Nicholas, I wanted to um, go back to something else you discussed, which was the, uh, the need for collaboration 
Yeah. And you know, you're talking collaboration, of course, among cities, consumers, automakers, technology companies, et cetera. Now, where do we stand in terms of the willingness of these different stakeholders to work together? And does that vary? I would imagine it would vary from city to city or from country to country. Yeah, well, I think I think um, the last decade has been quite interesting. Um, I'm actually uh, today at the headquarters of one of the large German car OEMs, and and uh, and I think um, and but this applies also to U.S. and and Japanese OEMs and French OEMs. I think the industry went through a decade of of of. Um, understanding, I would say, the massive change. I think uh, uh, when we look back at the 2010s, uh, early 2010s, I think uh, uh, companies such as Uber, such as Tesla, uh, were extremely young and were, I think, very clearly showing their vision, but the industry was not ready for cooperation. Uh, I think then came a phase where a lot of OEMs have tried to set uh, their own mobility ventures up, yeah. Uh, uh, and I think uh, um, you had uh, companies such as ShareNow in 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 in, in uh, Germany, uh, Maven in the US, and so on. And I think they, these companies uh, have tried to provide the mobility ventures out of one hand. And I think now we are at a moment where. Um, I think many OEMs have found out that it's actually not themselves who can cater to everything. I think they, com- they contribute very valuable elements to it. But then there are obviously corporations that they start with tech firms when it comes to autonomous driving. They start with cities or mobility providers when it comes to car sharing, uh, limousine services and others. So I think these are the three phases. I think there was a first phase of, of, of saying, well, that won't be as dramatic as, as, as we see it, like, I don't know, between 2010 and 2012, 2014. Then there was a, a period where, where a lot of OEMs said, okay, let's try to do it ourselves. And I think we are now in a situation where many are shifting and saying, okay, who are the best partners to do that together? Shifting to other forms of transportation now, uh, your report seems fairly bullish on the future of micromobility and uh, also in what you call autonomous mobility on demand. I'm Mm -hmm. curious about what is driving your optimism. I mean, we've seen on one hand, shared mobility, uh, ride-hailing companies have taken a hit in the age of COVID. Obviously, people are a little more hesitant to uh, hop in a vehicle with a stranger without the appropriate uh, uh, safety and cleanliness measures. On the other hand, micromobility, the scooter companies of the world have seen a bit of a bounce back. Uh, So can can you hash that out for us? Mm-hmm. So again, I think um, so. The, the the one thing which is I think pretty clear is, and again, we had the privilege to work many years with the World Economic Forum on future of mobility. And one thing which I think is very clear when I look back at all the customer research we have done uh, pre-COVID and during COVID uh, is that when you look in the future. Uh, while mobility on demand today is less than 10% of trips, whether you're in China, whether you're in Europe, whether you're in the US, mobility on demand will likely be between 30 to 40% of all trips in 10 years from now. Okay, so tripling. 
Um, and mobility on demand will be uh, will continue to be obviously an Uber, a Lyft, a traditional cab, but it will be the robo shuttle, it will be the robopod. Um, so I think there is a very clear wish coming from the consumers to move from owned uh, passenger car mobility and public transport mobility to what we call mobility on demand uh, going forward. So I think that's something which I would say is very clear. Now, um, in those mobility on demand, I think there are, uh, if we if we believe in that trend, I think there is um, uh, there is a clear demand for uh, robo shuttles and robo pods uh, in bad weather for longer distances. But there is also a clear demand for uh, micro mobility, so e scooters, e kick scooters, e bikes, bikes, and so on. Uh, because they are the perfect complement to the multimodal trip you have. And so, yes, they have been also, I think, like ride-hailing has been touched by COVID, micromobility has been impacted by COVID, but I think this has not changed, I would say, the two fundamental trends we see, which is A, uh, a big demand in on-demand mobility, as I said, from 10 to 30% upwards in the next 10 years, and second, uh, actually a move from an owned vehicle to a used vehicle, be it a car, be it a micromobility. And last but not least, I think micromobility actually has taken off massively in the post-COVID world. Uh, uh, I've rarely seen so many bikes uh, in the city as in the last months because uh, a bike or a kick scooter is the perfect post-COVID transportation mode because you're alone, you're in the fresh air. Uh, so I would say infection risk is obviously uh, much, much smaller than if you are in a fully packed bus. Speaking of COVID, uh, one trend that we've observed here in the U.S. is uh, we see residents of cities like New York, like San Francisco, uh, fleeing for the suburbs. Uh, There's a really yeah. interesting story in the New York Times yesterday about uh, New Yorkers leaving for New Jersey uh, in droves. Uh, I'm curious if, if there's similar trends in Germany uh, or elsewhere in Europe that you're seeing. And is that just a COVID hiccup or, or will uh, urbanization in general kind of take a hit in the decade ahead because of, because of this? Well, I think urban sprawl is a trend which we have seen pre-COVID. Yeah? And I think uh, in the many discussions I've had around autonomous vehicles, actually people were worried about urban sprawl. Uh, uh, because uh, obviously if your car drives yourself, you can also do a daily commute of one and a half hours if needed, because you can start the minute you sit in the car. Um, so I think this is definitely something that has happened already pre-COVID and that has not only happened in the US, but you see that also in every, let's say, larger uh, European city. Uh, now, uh, I think COVID has accelerated that in two ways. One is um, we have seen uh, I think for the first time in human mankind, have you seen so many people actually locked in in more or less small uh, city center apartments? Um, and I think the experience has driven many people to actually say, well, um, uh, I'm, I, I need to have an alternative to being whatever on the 10th floor um, of a, of a medium-sized uh, apartment. So there is a move, I think, to the suburbs out of that. But this is also then, I would say, re-emphasized by a second COVID effect, which is 
um, the future hybrid working mode, which means uh, in the past we used to do either work at home or home office, or we worked uh, at your at the premises of, of, of the company we're working for. And I think from all the research we have done, we see that actually, even if we have a vaccine, uh, even if everyone uh, is, is, is back to normal, if you call it like this, uh, or back to a new normal, there will still be a substantial amount of people working in home offices. Yeah. And if you work in a home office, you, that this requires more space. Space is cheaper when you're in the suburbs. Uh, you have less the problem of the commute because you spend two or three days at home. So I think these are the three combinations. Yeah? The COVID experience itself drives people out of the city. The remainder of home office will have people uh, look for larger surfaces to live at the same time will, uh, let's say, reduce the impact of daily commute. And finally, for those few daily commutes that you will still have, the autonomous car in 10 years might make that commute also easier. Now, you have a book coming out. So um, can you tell us more about that? Yes. Well, we're, uh, we're writing a book, uh, written a book together with two colleagues, um, which is called Beyond Great, um, which we will be publishing on October 6th and which uh, goes well which has one section also on mobility but which is a broader perspective on really how should the companies prepare for the challenges of the 21st century yeah? and this is obviously elements such as uh, technological development uh, but also uh, obviously geopolitical nationalism uh, it's about social tension and, and so we are looking at, uh, I would say, in a very holistic way of how companies need to prepare for that. Yeah? Prepare in the way how they lay out their strategies, uh, how they define their operations, and how they uh, set up their organizations. Nicholas, was there anything from your study that, that you found surprising or unexpected? Well, yes, uh, I think the most surprising was for me the magnitude of the impact examples. Yeah, as, I, as we discussed, I think we took different city archetypes. We took the simulation model with 1.7 billion trips per uh, day. But that sounds all very scientific and artificial. But if you then translate the effect of our simulation into concrete cities, I found that very, very impressive and surprising. So let me give you an example. Um, if we were to use the optimal transport mix in Los Angeles, we could cut the CO2 emission by 2.7 million metric tons per year. Um, and that would be through promoting shared AVs and curbing private cars. Another example is uh, in Berlin, uh, households could save $1.6 billion per year on transportation costs uh, if the city reduced private cars and promoted micromobility and public transportation. Uh, New York could free up the equivalent of 900 blocks of space currently used for parking. 900 blocks, um, which is huge. Um, and uh, that's something which, which, which I think is impactful. We could also reduce in London the number of road fatalities uh, by 60 and non-fatal traffic accidents by 15,000. 
Um, and uh, I think what is also interesting is in Hong Kong, a typical citizen could, uh, could reduce his commuting time by 20 hours if they were combining micromobility with the existing mobility basis. So whether it's CO2 emission, whether it's parking space, whether it's uh, household uh, budget, I found those concrete examples, I would say the most surprising and insightful of the study. Nicholas, what was the methodology? I'm just curious. I mean, how do you figure out something like this? I mean, those are some pretty impressive uh, predictions. So can you walk us through just really quickly the methodology that you used for this? Well, uh, the study, as I said, the study is based on a very, very detailed and comprehensive traffic simulation model where for every traffic mode, and we've we've looked at uh, over a dozen traffic modes, we have CO2 emission, we have cost per mile, we have space it occupies for parking, um, we have the likelihood of accidents. So for each of the transport mode, we have spent over a year together with the University of St. Gallen to determine really the characteristics for each traffic mode. And then obviously if you define uh, for each traffic mode, as I said, cost, CO2 emission, uh, space required, speed and so, uh, so on, and if you then put that into a traffic simulation model that takes the real life layout of a city, you can simulate how millions and millions of trips uh, will impact the city life. And obviously, if I then shift towards autonomous vehicles that might have less fatalities and require less parking space, I will have this type of results. So it's the mixture of a large scale traffic simulation model based on a set of a dozen tra transport modes, which we have detailed to the utmost level and then applied to specific city realities. Great, well, thank you so, so much, Nicholas. Uh, I think this sounds uh, like a great conversation and we appreciate your time this morning. Great. Well, thanks again, Nicholas, for that conversation. Uh, we covered a lot of ground uh, just in those last few minutes here. Um, I'm curious, Pete and Leslie, what what was your biggest takeaway, or what are your thoughts on you know your personal transportation needs and, and how you would uh, work around some of these trends that we've discussed? Well, I have to say, I'm a little sad that I won't be able to get a RoboPod. You know, we were talking about the whole idea of individually owned and operated autonomous transportation. But I imagine the robo shuttles should be something interesting to look forward to in a town, mostly large cities, I think would benefit from that, you know, where you um, really need help getting around and negotiating traffic. I don't know, Pete, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that it is interesting. And, I, and on the flip side to what Nicholas was talking about, I, I kind of struggle to imagine that a, you know, a meaningful subset of passengers will, will prefer to you know, like leave the confines of personal transportation, whether that's an Uber or their own car, to go to something that's shared. I think that you know, perhaps in Europe that is uh, more easily said than done than than the U.S., but uh, I guess that remains to be seen. Uh, Alexa, what's, what do you think? You know, for me, I'm still just really stuck on this whole idea of parking. I mean, even in the pandemic, uh, trying to park downtown or in uh, more populated areas is just such a pain. People are still 
you know, moving around, uh, getting out and about. And so I would love nothing more than, you know, be it a robo pod, a robo taxi, or just a plain old, you know, traditional public transportation system to ensure that I don't have uh, the parking challenges that that I have and that we've talked about on this podcast before. But uh, we'll see if some of those issues get addressed, at least here in the metro Detroit area. Um, And, you know, I'm curious in the future, too, some things I've heard about, you know, repurposing traditional parking spots for, you know, a self-driving, you know, robo delivery uh, vehicle or an autonomous vehicle, um, you know, using those spots instead for fast pickup and delivery that that'll likely make our, our parking lives a little bit harder as well. So we'll see how everything in the ecosystem kind of comes together. That's true. And that kind of reminds me of something I've been wondering, uh, driving around Southeast Michigan in the last few days is, uh, you know, we've had all these restaurants kind of move outdoors as part of COVID. Uh, and they've got, uh, you know, they've taken up some, some parking spots. Uh, and I think that, uh, I'll be curious a, to see if some of those changes are permanent. I think it's, it's largely been a, a big success, uh, at least in my area and, and probably lots of other areas. But on the flip side, as, as the weather starts to turn cooler, uh, how long uh, are people going to be will, you know, willing to sit outside? And you know, how seasonal is this change? I, I agree with you, Pete. I think we're not going to see a lot of people dining outdoors, obviously, in 10 inches of snow in Michigan. But probably we'll see more people leaning toward curbside delivery. And who knows, maybe autonomous vehicles will figure into that whole delivery model where you can bring things to people's homes, you know, probably not anytime soon, but in some test markets, we might see an expansion of various pilot programs and things like that. So we'll see. And, um, or who knows, maybe we'll all be baking sourdough bread at home again and waiting until the weather warms up. If you're baking sourdough bread, uh, you know, I want to try some of that. That sounds good, Leslie. You got it, Pete. You're the first person to taste it. I'll I'll bring some over to your home. Excellent. Uh, Well, on that note, I think that marks the end of today's episode. Uh, We have Hillary Kane from the Auto Alliance joining us next week. Be sure to catch that conversation. Uh, But for now, thank you for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time.